0: Don't get it. They're about to embark upon a journey. They think, anyway. And our Lord knows they are unable to complete the journey they're about to embark upon. They're unable. No, 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 no. We're able. There's thousands of us here. We're all ready to go. We're going with you. We're going where you're going. Did you hear what I said about excuse-making? Yeah, 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 no, 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 that's, we're clear on that. No, notice the text, he knows they're not, verse 25, the great crowds accompanied, he turned and said to them. Picture it, here he's walking, thousands of people following him, and he is thinking it through. I just explained the thought, the invitation, the demand, the call, the priority. He's walking, he's thinking this, and here are the thousands of people. And if you read the text and just think about the scene for a moment, he turns. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I say this as we proceed to consider. As I was looking at this text, and I think you would agree, many of us, if we just are honest about it, the American church... Protestants, evangelicals are eerily or is eerily similar to the great crowds of verse 25. And and I don't put Redeemer, all of us we will see through the text. Again, it's not to use as leverage against other ministries. It's to examine where we are individually, our own hearts, our community collectively as a church. But the American church is eerily similar to the great crowds of verse 25. That Jesus needs to turn and say, turn to them and say, Hello, look, let's have a reality check. I I purposely use the word eerily, that it's eerily similar, if we're sober-minded in our reading of the text, because although the Bible is crystal clear, I mean, crystal clear about the reality and purpose of suffering in the life of a Christian. Many walk away from the faith as soon as suffering or difficulty arises. Have you thought of that? Everyone hears sermons or thinks on the role of tragedy, suffering, and hardship, opposition in their pilgrim's journey. And they acknowledge that as the story of redemption, as the cost of discipleship. We all assent to hardship as a part of our life in Christ. But how often it is a winnowing fork for many to be driven out of the faith altogether. Why? Didn't we know? Yes, we did. Me saying this to you isn't the first time you've heard that hardship is a part of your cost of discipleship. So it's not for a lack of hearing it, a lack of knowing it, a lack of perhaps even anticipating it. However, when it arises, how quickly we fall away. The first feather in our path, we're ready to jump off the path and forge our own way forward. We have to ask, why? Why, right? We know this is coming. Here it is. I'm out of here. It's not a part of my cost. When you knew it was coming, I know. So so what's the break? Why then run from it? Why then get out of it? Why then denounce your walk with the Lord? My answer, kind of moving forward in the text, is I suspect that the answer is similar to the answer of the text. That's why this text is here for us. Great crowds, put yourself there. We're a part of the great crowds. We're accompanying the Lord. But Jesus has need to turn. Not us get closer. We're following. He turns to face us. You don't get it. I think it's because many of us follow Jesus. Because we feel that he can do certain things for us. You see, it's that sense of utility of confession. What he is capable of. What he can do for me. And if we come to him on those grounds, I come to you because of what you can do. For me, that sense of utility doesn't match a life of suffering and hardship. You're not doing for me correctly. So you came for self preserving reasons, for self advancement, for self promotion. Well, no. I'm just saying right now, you're not doing things correctly for me. You see, in, in, in very real ways, those certain things, whatever we all might feel at times in our own hearts, those certain things we maybe came to Christ because we thought he could do for us, those certain things may be very real in our hearts, very real in our minds. But like the followers of verse 25... Jesus knows them to be ultimately superfluous. He knows them to be shallow ambition. He knows them to be momentary, though they might be absolutely genuine or real in your own mind. By grace, he seeks to expose your coming to him for utility purposes. That's why he says, those who have ears to hear, let him hear. This is a gracious exposure that we might see what's there and why we came, repent, and rest in him afresh. Again, bridging the world of the first century to ourselves, Consider for a moment what we might call here, um, or or we label it, uh, the prosperity gospel. Consider, just take the symptoms of the American church, just for a moment, in light of verse 25, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them. Um, Or maybe instead of prosperity gospel, you've heard it some, and maybe even in satire ways, refer to it as a name it and claim it religion of American Protestants. And I, and I don't pick on this because it's low-hanging fruit. I address it because in many ways... We can make fun of it or, or we can say how ridiculous it is. It, 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 again, it's, for many um, of us, or, or pastors particularly, you, it's low-hanging fruit. You can just make a, a, a scenario out of it and really go after it really good and kind of create that great distinction between you and it. I, I don't do it for those purposes, uh, to make fun of an individual man and his wife who fills stadiums. It, it, it's not the point. Actually, if you think about it just for a moment, in light of verse 25, many great crowds following them. And then think of our current context with prosperity gospel. In many ways, if we're honest, the prosperity gospel, that kind of ridiculous approach and preaching, false advertising, it is inevitable outcome of our, the church's, obsession with consumer culture. It's the inevitable outcome. Where 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 does such theology get a grounds for an audience to listen to it? Where does it come from? Oh, it's their fault. They said it and we came. No, 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 no. Think about it more honestly than that. It is the inevitable outcome of the church's obsession with consumer culture and our love of the therapeutic. It's us. We have in that stadium an ear to hear. Because our obsession with the consumer culture I need, I need, I need, I need. Get this flashy new item. Get this new house. Get this car. Get this asset. Move up in this ladder. It's a consumer culture. And we as believers have been consumed with it. And you can never leave off the love of the therapeutic or the love of the self. One writer explains it this way, and again, I'm going to tie it to verse 25 and then move forward in the text. There are great crowds in the first century who are following him, and they don't get it. And there are great crowds who follow him now who don't get it. Just like a couple of passages ago, they were there. They they thought they would be there in the end, and then it sprung on them at the end. You're not one of us. You're not a child. You're not a sheep. You're a goat. I thought my whole life I was. That's what's coming down the hill in the thousands in the scene of the text. And he turns to say to them, be sober-minded, you don't get it. One writer explains the prosperity cycle in the American church this way. He says, quote, the prosperity gospel is phenomenally successful because, and this is, this is revealing, think with me just for a moment on it, Prosperity Gospel is phenomenally successful because it is the exaggerated fulfillment of the self-help movement. You being a better you. It's the exaggerated fulfillment of the self-help movement and the cult of celebrity rolled into one. This is perhaps the most damning indictment of the statement. It gives Americans what Americans crave. Reassurance delivered with a smile. End quote. You see, whether you think that's a fair criticism or not, I lay at your feet. I think it's dead on. How many of us right now in different sectors of our life, have a deep craving for reassurance, for reaffirmation. At the cost of what? In fact, the thought that what Americans crave or the American church craves most is reassurance delivered with a smile Sunday in and Sunday out is exactly opposed to Luke 12 51 we've already covered it so I won't go back over the grounds but it's the first place where we see in Luke 12 51 first place where he says do you think our Lord says do you think that I came to bring peace the American church says yeah and we like the peace with a smile he says no no It's not like, well, I kind of did, in in, in a couple different ways. He is addressing this issue of affirming you where you are. Did I come just to say, hey, in the end, as I mentioned then, a fun time has had by all. No, that's not what I'm here to say to you. Do you think that's what I'm here for, is to bring peace, to reassure you, everybody looks good, keep it up, champ. No, emphatically not. You see, the preaching of Christ again and again through Luke's gospel and we'll see in the next few moments here in our text as well directly exposes our self-protective reflexes. And we all have them. The immediate reflex to protect and to keep and to hold on to whatever those items of idolatry are within our hearts. Whatever they are. His preaching ministry again and again exposes that immediate, I hear a text, self-reflexive reflex, self-protective. And that's why he turns to the crowds and feels the need to address us you're not getting it. Well, the man says, I bought a field, remember? And, and look up at the text. Look, look at that immediate, what is the excuse? Well, it's self-protective. Look at verse 18. I won't preach the whole text, of course, but just look for a moment. Verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, right, self-protective reflex. Well, I have bought a field. Look look at the next... Well, hey, do you want to come to the banqueting table? I have bought five yoke of oxen. You know, have me excused. Look at at the third excuse of the text. This self-protective reflex at the cost of discipleship. Verse 20, I'm inviting you. Well, I have just started my married life you know, please have me excused. So in sum, if you were to put together all three excuses, the bottom line is this, of which the American church as well continues to say. And I say all of us. The summary, if you were to put all three excuses together, is simply this. I have dreams and ambitions. Please let me be excused. You know, I've got things going. Please have me excused. P.S. You know I love you, but I'm a bit busy. Our Lord knows what is on our hearts and if I can encourage each of us, myself included, even here in preaching such a passage, he looks at each and every one of us this morning in the face and he sees what is on the heart. There's not one, in a, one of us in this room who is not laid bare in front of this passage. He knows what's on your heart that draws your mind to say, please have me excused. And as the text then moves forward, why why, why does he feel the need to stop all these would-be followers? Does he feel the need to stop us this morning and turn to each and every one of us? Stop. Stop. Just right now, stop. Nobody take any more steps forward. Why? Because I refuse to be a supporting cast member In your self help play. That's why. No, 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 no. You do certain things. I'm not a supporting cast member to be drawn out for a very important scene, but then pushed away while the limelight turns back onto you as you hit your final notes. I'm not trying to get you to the encore performance. So he feels the need to turn to the crowds. Look at one last piece of introduction. I promise that wasn't just like introduction as in two or five minutes long. It's a part of the sermon. Just in case you think, oh my goodness, introduction. Um, But it's such an important passage for all of us. Look at the weight of it just for the last piece of of the final phrase there of verse 26. 26. It doesn't get any more costly than this. And even his own life. And you know what came before it. I don't read the whole thing. We'll look at the text here now as we move forward. But you know what he's saying there. And it doesn't get any more critical than that. Even his own life. You cannot be my disciple. It's an interesting piece there, isn't it, at the end of 26 that he says, cannot? Because think about it just for a moment. Many people who are coming in verse 25, they're accompanying him. So, how can you say to them, they cannot be disciples? Aren't they disciples already? They're following, they're accompanying. Do you see that? It's not like you're a bad disciple. Or, you know, a less dedicated disciple. He's not leaving, leaving each of us with that sense of the scales that we judge the importance of occasionally. Like, this is a really big decision. I should consult maybe prayer. It, it, on the other ones, it's simple. I can move on. He's not saying, no, no, no. Let's see. It's not that you're a, a kind of a half-hearted disciple. What I'm saying to you is you don't have the option to be considered a disciple. You see the, see the language? You cannot be. Like as in you don't qualify to be considered a disciple. You think you're following. But you're not following. Yes, I am. I just came down the hill with you. There's thousands of... What do you mean we're not following? You're walking and we're right behind you. No. What do you mean? I go to church. I, 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 I take the sacraments. I even sing a, a Christian song somewhere. He's saying, I know, location-wise, you you are moving, but you're not following. In fact, you're moving, but you cannot be considered a disciple. Pastor Dan said this last week, and it struck me as it stood out. So I think the same thing. I got here earlier this morning, I was talking to Dan about the passage and about what is going on here. And I said, you know, as, as Luke continues to accumulate, I think what he said last week is spot on because I felt like that even this week in preparing the sermon for all of us this morning is um, no one believes this. I, I, I examine my own heart as I read such a text. Questioning my own belief in it. You cannot be a disciple but how easily we all give ourselves the title disciple without truly counting the cost. That's the analysis. At the end, he gives you three examples of what it means. Basically, I'm not going to deal with all three of them because the bottom line is, as he's saying, wait and deliberate. That's it. That's the sum total of it. Wait and think about it. In other words, count the cost before you begin because you will embark and you will not finish. So, so don't rush into it. Wait and think about it. Because it will cost you your entire life. And if it never does, just figure that you're actually not a disciple. You just play the part. Now, let's look at the text just briefly for the next couple of moments here as he begins to address the issue of utility of purpose, right? Like, we, we follow you. Here is thousands and great crowds because we love the therapeutic and we're seeking self-assurance because we want you to serve our purposes. I have dreams, I have ambitions, and I'm going to sprinkle a little Jesus onto it right to make it sweetened so that I can succeed at it. So he wants to kind of flay our Terms of discipleship, actually. Lay them out. In a manner that those who have ears to hear this morning, let them hear. Look at the first term of discipleship. True discipleship looks like this. And again, it's not that, you know, some of us will, some of us won't. The bottom line is, it, it cannot be considered following if it doesn't include this. And that is simply absolute Allegiance absolute allegiance look at verse 25 and 26 just for a moment now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them if anyone comes to me anybody and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters you say well I've had family conflict all over the place I could probably work up a hatred for all those people He just pushes to the essence. Yes, you probably could, but how about this one? Even his own life. He doesn't qualify for discipleship. Now, obviously, to just state the obvious... Um, in what he just laid out, laid out here about family. Our Lord is not abolishing, just for our own sakes, he is not abolishing the Sixth Commandment, right? You recall, honor thy father, father and mother, which is the moral law, which is a creation ordinance that abides for all time. He didn't come to abolish it and put it away, but to fulfill it. So here also he is not saying, therefore, the Ten Commandments are over, I'm giving you the freedom in me to hate your parents. Or to say to teenagers, perhaps, good, he gave us grounds to disagree with our parents. He said, you know, we're allowed to hate them. That's definitely not the case, right? Um, In fact, Paul, in his own ministry in Ephesians 6, he repeated this commandment to the church, and particularly to the children. Honor your father and mother. So, again, I think we do well to follow the words of John Stott here. He says, quote, we mustn't be unimaginative literalists in handling the words of Christ here. So what does he then mean if we're not to be unimaginative literalists and say he simply is saying we're allowed to hate whoever we want? In fact, it's virtuous. Um, We would do well to turn to Matthew 10, 37. If you could turn to Matthew 10, 37, just for a moment, because as a synoptic, it will put this, again, uh, the language is a little bit um, clearer for us to get a handle on from Matthew. So if you look in Matthew 10, just for a moment, This, again, is the passage we referred to kind of in Luke 12 as well, just a moment ago. But I'll begin reading verse 34 just quickly. Um, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. That is what Americans want most. Affirmation. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's the inevitable outcome of his demands. For I've come to set a man against his father. And a daughter against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now into our text this morning, verse 37, whoever loves father or mother, and there's your key to the text, more than me. This is how we're filling in the terms of hatred expressed in Luke. More than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves a son or a daughter, which is so easy to do, more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever in any set of circumstances does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And remember the promise, whoever finds his life in all of those pleasures will end up losing it. Whoever loses his life in obedience, that is, for my sake, will find it. So again, if we look at the simplicity of the passage and we understand that Jesus is saying, whoever loves or idolizes their children or loves their parents or loves, fill in the blank, of close, net, intimate relationship, whatever that is. Well, I don't have this relationship, it's not my problem. You have relationships, Whoever loves that and prizes that relationship more than me is a poor disciple. No, cannot be my disciple. The question is simply this. Who is first in allegiance? Christ or family? Christ or intimate relationships. Who is first? A true disciple must. It's non-negotiable. He's not giving you multiple options. He is saying a true disciple must place him above everyone else. I would say this. It's somewhat encouraging, and it is hard as well to think about these relationships and the results of the gospel's impact upon them. I can say for sure, as each one of you, I'm sure, has experienced, as a result of your discipleship, some of your relationships will be deepened. A spiritual father will be a part of your life, a spiritual mother, perhaps, a spiritual sister in Christ, a spiritual brother, someone to rely on. Someone to speak to. Someone to share those intimate thoughts and those burdens you bear. Share the joys of your walk and your pilgrim journey with Christ. Because of discipleship, some relationships you have will be deepened. Will mean more than they ever could have without the gospel. There is rich reward that Christ supplies in the cost of discipleship. Yet it is also true because of the gospel some relationships must be forsaken. Some relationships must be forfeited directly because of the gospel. It may cost you a boyfriend. It may cost you a girlfriend. It may cost you an intimate relational experience with your parents. It might cost you intimacy with your children, down the line somewhere. But a true discipleship must reflect that Christ is to be valued above everyone else. Christ demands this morning from each of us our trust, our allegiance, and our devotion. With such a weighty call, it brings a further statement on cross-bearing. Look at the text. It's very natural that he would say this next. It's absolute or nothing. So it moves to cross-bearing. Look at verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross... Right? It's an expansion on losing the most intimate relationships in your life. Well, I'm not willing to do that. Then you won't bear your cross. Pick your example. But the bottom line is this. Whoever does not bear his own cross, whatever that cross may be, whatever's drawing your allegiance away from me, whatever that idol on your heart is, whatever it is, whoever will not give it up, but hold on to it, or even seek Jesus to do something in favor of advancing it. Whoever will not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, the text is obvious. He's saying if this call to total allegiance sounds too costly, and I admit It oftentimes does. If total devotion and total allegiance and total trust sounds too costly or it makes you feel too vulnerable, then you cannot be a disciple. Further, let the warning rest. Don't kid yourself that you are a disciple. Let him who have ears to hear hear what's being said. Don't kid yourself. You see, because the picture is this, right? Jesus is bearing his cross. Where are they following him to in um, verse 25? Where are they accompanying him? What direction is he going? He's going to Jerusalem to bear the cross. Everybody's saying, hey, we're coming. And he says, no, you're not. No, you're not. Don't kid yourself. Because, no, you're not. You see, many in the crowds that are accompanying thousands of people and thousands of us this morning are not really sure if we're honest, if Jesus is worth following especially if we have to go through Jerusalem. Many of us want what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. I mean, no one's going to sit in here and say, I don't want any grace. Bonhoeffer says, oh, no, yeah, we do. We just want cheap grace. He writes this, quote, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of a man will gladly go and sell all that he has to possess. The costly grace of Christ is the pearl of great price to buy for which the merchant will gladly sell all that he has. Costly grace—it's the experience of the king, kingly rule of Christ. For whose sake? Now think of this just for a moment, because it's our words, Lord, our, our Lord's words. For whose sake a man will pluck out his very own eye if it causes him to stumble. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. Hear Bonhoeffer's last words. But it is a gracious cost because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. You see, the cost of discipleship is the cost of us, each and every one of us, to lie down the slavery of self-seeking utility in the Lord and to take up the freedom that is ours in the gospel. Finally, our Lord reinforces the sobriety of the cost of discipleship. Look at the text as we conclude in verse 28 and following. For which of you desiring to build a tower, right, does not first sit down and count the cost? He's telling you, me, this morning, think about it. Who won't think about the cost, whether he has enough to complete it or not? Otherwise, when he has laid its foundation and is not able to finish, everybody sees it and begins to mock him, saying, this man began to build, and look at him. He's not even able to finish. He's just giving us examples, right? Don't be indecisive. Count the cost. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down and first and deliberate, whether he has able to with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. He would just walk in and be slaughtered, right? And if not, while the other is yet great way off, he figures, he deliberates, he acts. He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. I'm going to get slaughtered here. I've done the calculus. So Jesus says to us in 33, so therefore, any one of you who doesn't do likewise... Count the cost, renounce, surrender, give up all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to perceive the truth of the cost of following. When it is made plain, it feels overwhelming when we see our own selfishness in light of such great cost. It can quickly drive us to despair that we have not surrendered, we aren't giving up. We see the sin that so easily entices us, the idols that are everywhere littered upon our hearts, that we value almost everything with you in second place. I pray that you give us ears to hear the weightiness of the call of the gospel and see the freedom that you provide for us in it. As with Augustine, we pray, let our hearts be restless, Lord, until they find their rest in thee. Let our idols all crumble and never satisfy. Let us pursue you through faith and find your peace.